You've heard of fish that live in pools in the mountains, underground, and after many generations, they, they lose their eyesight because there's no light down there. Their eyes atrophy, don't develop right. Um, eyes are not a lot of help in a dark cave. Now, there's a point to that. I wasn't trying to act like a preacher. Because <laughs> you know what they're like. But those of us who have received Jesus, we're not blind anymore. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And the Apostle Paul says, God has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But even with all that, we still live in a dark world. And one of the effects of living in a dark world is that you can start to lose your vision. Like Asaph. Here he writes Psalm 73 about looking at the wicked. And he lost perspective. He kind of lost his vision of God. Because he wasn't looking at God, he was looking at the wicked and saying, you know what, they get away with murder. And here, I've been plagued and chastened every day. But then he came into the sanctuary of God. And he got a new perspective because seeing God and seeing his situation, he says, you know what? They f slip in slippery places. He says, I wouldn't want to be one of the wicked for anything. And he ends up saying, whom have I in heaven but you, O God? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So this is one of the reasons, by the way, why you want to come to church. Because it's one way to keep your vision in a dark world. When you lose sight of Jesus, everything goes black. So here we are in the sanctuary of God this morning. And we're looking at Good Friday because next week is Easter. But what we want to do is renew our vision of Jesus on the cross. We're going to look at that from Romans chapter 5. And so I'm going to read from verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So when you think about Good Friday, you think about a person on a cross. That's who you see. And we learn four things about who this person is. His name is Jesus. That's the Greek way to say the Hebrew name Yeshua. Now, that was a very common name around that time. Had lots of kids being named Joshua. That is a popular name because that was the name of Moses' assistant. And actually, he was born with the name Hosea, which means salvation. But in Numbers, it says that Moses used to call him Yeshua. It's like, here's a guy named Hosea, that's his name. You don't go around changing his name. But Moses did. From salvation, he started calling him Yahweh is salvation. That's the name of God we think in Hebrew. We know it's the four letters, and the technical name for that is the Tetragrammaton. All that means is the four-lettered name. And we're not quite sure how to pronounce it because there are no vowels in Hebrew. So one way to pronounce it could be Yahweh. Yahweh is salvation. Now imagine, all these kids and all these adults running around with the name. Yahweh is salvation. But in this case, it is literally true. He is Yahweh, God, and he is salvation. The second name for him in this section of Scripture is there in verse 6, Christ. Now, that's not a personal name. You'll see people, when they blaspheme the name of Jesus, think of that as a surname. But it's not a name, it's a title. And in Hebrew, it's Mashiach. It means the anointed one. And Messiah. The Messiah is the servant of God. This is the one that God spoke about in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. 
Isaiah wrote this in chapter 49. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is the purpose for the servant of God, the Messiah, that he would not only save God's people, the Jews, but he would go further and save the Gentiles all over the earth. So his name is Jesus. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the servant of God. He's also the Son of God. Verse 10, the death of his Son. Now this means that Jesus is equal with the Father. Can you imagine that? Here's a guy about my size, maybe a little shorter. Equal with the Father. All-powerful, the exact character of the Father to where he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And Notice in verse 11, he is the Lord, Jesus Christ. That means he is the ruler of all that he has created. And every knee in heaven, on earth, under the earth is going to bow to Jesus. Every voice is going to say that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That means every single person who's ever lived, every angel who has ever lived, even the wicked people, the fallen angels, demons, and the devil himself, is going to proclaim the truth that Jesus is God Worthy to be worshipped as God. This isn't blasphemy. This is right. Now, hold that in your mind. The next thing we see in this passage is ourselves as we really are. That is, this is how God sees us. This is how Jesus sees us when he looks on us. Because, you know, he, he looks on us and sees our outward person that we've combed our hair today and we've, we're wearing clothes. And some of us are very stylish. Like all the colors match. That's a good trick. Some of us don't get that far. But God sees past 
all that, and he sees the heart. What does he see? Well, look in verse 6. It says there, we were still without strength. And I, I like to study in the New American Standard translation, it says helpless. And it means literally without strength. Now, we do have physical strength. We can move things from here to there. We can get stuff done. We have abilities. We have skills. But it's not talking about physical strength. It's talking about moral strength. That is, the ability to please God. Can we do something so that God will look upon that and go, ah, that's exactly the way I would like to see it happen? And the answer is no. Nobody has any power to please God because of the heart. We can even do the right thing. But we don't want to. And this is the part that offends God and brings out his wrath because our hearts are far from him. We can even see that the right thing to do is to do this. And we say, I don't want to. And again, we can go through the motion and do the right thing, but inside we're kicking rocks and saying, kill me now, I'd rather die than do this. And you know, the more you try to do what's right, the more you will convince yourself that you are wrong. There's something really wrong with you that you cannot fix because you will attempt to do the right thing and find yourself doing the very thing you don't want to do. And if you pursue that long enough, you will come to the point where you realize, I am so wrong, I'm so twisted. You don't even look to God to help you. This is how bad it is. You think, no, I've got to do this. I've got to do this. And you can't do it. And you never think about saying, God, will you help me? That means no power to love God. No strength to do the very thing that we see Jesus doing, which is laying down his life for his friends. And what we really do is make others lay down their lives for us. That's called murder. And you can do it fast, bullet, knife, automobile at high speed. There's lots of ways to do it fast. But you can do it slow by just getting your way, making that other person do what you want. Uh, it takes longer. 20 years, 30 years, but you kill them. Make somebody else lay down their life for you. Now that's helpless without strength. 
But the next thing in this passage is ungodly. That's verse 6 too. Ungodly. Now that, what that means is no fear of God. And no sense of what is holy and pure and sacred in order to keep that as holy and pure and sacred. It's supposed to be untouchable. It's supposed to be kept pure and uncorrupted, and you don't profane it. But whatever God says, keep pure and holy, we corrupt that. And we use it for a common purpose. Now, you know, one of the commandments is keep the Sabbath holy. And you think, well, you know, what's so important about that? And the truth is, is that God set apart that day as a time to be holy and to not do anything and to give attention to the things of God to be a rest and a recreation, literally. That's what it's there for. Now, you know, thanks to God, you don't have one day off. You got two days off. Do you get that? That's called the weekend. One is the Jewish Sabbath. The other one is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. It was the first day of the week. Thanks to God, you get two days off. Amazing, isn't it? And only from God, nowhere else. Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh, none of those guys know about a weekend. Work you till you drop. The weekend comes from God. Now, what do people do with that sacred time set apart for the worship of God and the rest for one's soul? What do they do with it? It's a big shopping day. Let's go to the mall. Let's work our businesses. Now, you say, well, what's the big deal? And the answer is, if you do not keep the Sabbath, you are doomed to work seven days a week until you die. You don't get any rest. And then you wonder why you're tired. That's because you're beat. You're a slave. Now, you could say, well, the Sabbath, you know, that's Jewish. That's the law. And we're free from the law. I'll give you that. But we're still in the body. And if you don't get that rest, you're going to die like an unbeliever. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? But that time that God says, keep it holy which will actually benefit you, turns out to be a way to die slowly if you don't keep it. All right? What people find sacred are the very things that God says don't do. Those are the things that are sacred and untouchable in this world. 
And I'll give you just one example, and you're going to know what I mean. One sacred thing is the sexual relationship. And God says that belongs between a man and a woman, united in holy matrimony their whole life. But what we see is the misuse and overemphasis of the sexual relationship. So that we have L and G and B and T and Q, gender fluidity, and all of that is untouchable. If you say anything about it, people jump on you as if you have blasphemed. Get that? Now, this is the kind of outrage that should be reserved for the things of God because they are holy. And to profane that and corrupt that is an offense against God. You shouldn't profane the holiness of God. You should not blaspheme God. But in today's world, if you criticize, if you say that's not right, you receive all of this righteous indignation and wrath. How dare you? Well, the wrong things are holy and untouchable to a person who has no fear of God. The values are absolutely reverse, ungodly. But the third thing in this passage that is said of people is that they are sinners. Did you get that? Verse 8, sinners. And this word is not well understood nowadays. You could call somebody a sinner and they go, what? How's that bad? And it's this. It means to miss the target. And you go, oh, really? That? Who cares? Well, whatever you aim for, you don't hit. You want to get it, but you don't. All right? Now, that might seem to be untrue. People aim for stuff all the time, and they get it. Like they want to be rich. Okay, so they end up rich. So what did I miss? I got it, right? I'm filthy rich. Woohoo! So how did I miss it? Well, to miss also means to fail to understand. Instead of understanding it correctly, you have a different understanding and you miss it entirely. And see, you think that aiming for what you want is the way to go, and when you get it, you got it. But you're missing the whole point. Because when you don't understand that life is temporary and whatever you grasp, you can't keep, 
you're not only going to lose everything that you've acquired, but you will forfeit your own soul. You have missed eternal life completely. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit your own soul? So, to miss means to fail to obtain. You have utterly and completely failed. That's what it means to be a sinner. Now, you know, another thing that this passage shows us clearly is that everyone is a sinner. Everyone. You know that, just look at verse 8 for a second and look at, look at how it reads. But God demonstrates his own Lord love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that interesting? Now, you know, Paul was an incredible religious person with an impeccable training and an impeccable family history. He called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Shalom! Man, we are the people of God. We are the oracles of God. I've been trained by a rabbi since I was five years old. And he includes himself with helpless, ungodly sinners. There's no sense of, well, you know, we're cultured and highly religious, and we're not like you scum who don't understand anything. You don't get that kind of... You know, there's a special place for us, and you guys just stand over there and don't bug us. Your breath smells. Here's a guy that could say, as far as the righteousness demanded by the law, I was blameless. And he says, no, I'm one of them. I'm one of those helpless, ungodly sinners. So, this, then, is the amazing thing that God wants us to see when we think about Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, the Lord, the name above all names, the highest, he's dying He's dying a cruel death. There are few ways to die more cruel than crucifixion. It was illegal for a Roman citizen to die of crucifixion. It was called a death for slaves. That is to keep all the slaves in line. You step out of line, that's what you're going to be. It was gruesome. It was shameful. Rejected of men, rejected of God, dying naked on a cross. 
It's undeserved. That is, the Jewish leaders, they spent all night trying to find a charge to accuse him of so that he could, they could turn him over to the Romans and get rid of him. And they couldn't. They tried to trump a charge up. Couldn't do it. They tried to get him to incriminate himself. What are these guys trying to accuse you of? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the Messiah? Yes, I am. Okay. Now we're going to get you killed. But you know, they brought him to Pilate, the Roman governor, and three times he declared, Jesus hasn't committed a crime. Nothing. He sends him to, to the king, Herod, who's in town. You do something with them. Herod just puts a nice robe on him and sends him back. Nothing. Even the thief being crucified next to Jesus says, this man has done nothing wrong. Like he didn't deserve this. And see, he is righteous. The righteous one. He doesn't have to die. I'm not sure what would have happened if he hadn't been crucified. But he says, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. So there he is, not dying for himself, but dying in the place of those without strength, the ungodly, and sinners. Here's perfect Jesus, and here's us. And he's dying for us. And he's taking upon himself all the wrath of God against sin. He's hanging there saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And it says here in verse 11 and 10 that when Jesus died for us, he reconciled us to God. He brought us back into relationship with him. So the Father isn't angry with us anymore. He doesn't look at us like we're on probation and says, oh, you know, just keep your hands where I can see you. You know, I'm not letting you out of my sight. We'll see if you can do three months. You know, if he said that to me, I would say, look, we're dead already. <laughs> we're goners. So forget the three months probation. Just kill me now, kill me now. But we're saved from the wrath of God. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, if you've seen this far, then you get to see clearly that God loves you. This is what is being portrayed to us clearly. 
Because there in verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us. It means makes it clear. And when you look at Jesus dying on the cross, that's what you should get. That's what it says to you that God loves you. And he goes into this comparison where he says, you know what? We wouldn't die for anybody. We wouldn't die for a good guy. Maybe for somebody super, super nice. Maybe. But frankly, I wouldn't. I would just say, you know, a lot of bad things happen in life and everybody's time has to come. So I'm really sorry, pal, but I got a few years left. Stuff happens. But you know, the Father and the Son are not like us. See, the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's incomprehensible to a father. Which one of your kids do you want to give up? No. But he's different. And the son is giving his life in obedience to the father so that the world may know that I love the father. I do exactly as the father commanded me. Yes. He says, greater love has no one than this, than one laid down his life for his friends. He makes helpless, ungodly sinners his friends. So when we look at Jesus on the cross, we see the Father loving us. We see Jesus loving us. And then we get to see relationship with God. And we get to see joy. See, this is why he saves us, to bring us back. So we get that relationship with God where we get to live in that love and be filled with all the fullness of God, with his love. And you know, all we got to do is look at him and be saved. Isn't that amazing? Jesus said it's just like when Moses hung that bronze serpent up on a pole and you got bit by a snake. Quick, look at it. Look as hard as you can, and guess what? That's it. You're alive. And we're reconciled. That means we're not at war anymore. No conflict. It's over. And he says we get to be happy. Verse 11, we also rejoice in God. Isn't that amazing to be happy? You see, that doesn't happen very much in this world. And you look at all the news, and you read the news, and you say, who's happy? Are the LGBTQ happy? No, they talked about a day of vengeance. Vengeance isn't happy. How about all the politicians getting what they want? Are they happy? I don't see any happiness anywhere. I think this is a grim, dark world. And yet, we get to rejoice 
in the Lord Jesus. We get to be happy. We get to know and believe the love that God has for us. That's what life is about. Now, here's the deal. Our view of all of this can get dim. We can get dark with the world, and we can be oppressed with that. And part of it comes from looking at something else. So you got to ask yourself, what am I looking at? What am I focusing on? Even if you read all the alternative news sources, what you're going to read is going to make your blood boil. Now, it's true, but it doesn't seem to help, does it? Do you get any more peace and joy and happiness knowing that fact, that fact? We always knew it was true, and now they're saying it's true. <laughs> That's peaceful. That's joy-filled. Why don't you take a five-minute break? So, you ever heard of stale joy? I've experienced that a few times. Kind of like, oh yeah, I'm saved, so what? Don't you hate that? Kind of like, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, don't, don't bug me. And I actually noticed myself going through that this week. It's one of the things that made me say, what is the big problem here? And that's when I realized, I am looking at the wrong thing. I am looking at darkness. It is no wonder I am losing my vision. So, this is the thing to think about. You don't want to look at a guy on a cross. That's kind of gruesome and morbid, except it's Jesus, and that makes all the difference in the world. You have to look at him, because you're going to make yourself answer these questions. Who is he? What is he doing on that cross? What difference does it make to me? And you find out, God loves me. And he's given me eternal life. And this life is in his son. And the one who has the son has the life. And the one who doesn't have the son of God does not have the life. So this is the only way to work through these issues. This is the only way to come to this. I know that God loves me. And my value to him goes off the scale. I know that God is going to save me from death. I know he's going to keep me in this life. And if you've never seen Jesus like this before, you need to start looking at it this way and keep looking at it. You know, it, it is an amazing thing to see love like this 
and not let it move you. Not let it grip your heart and realize, love like this, I don't know that. This is beyond human love. And so if you don't know that, all you got to do is look to Jesus and say, that is for me. So let's pray. Thank you again, Heavenly Father, that you do shine your light into the darkness. And you reach even us. We thank you that you're our light and our salvation. And we thank you for loving us with everlasting love. Thank you that we get to know that. To know that you love us right now. Helpless, ungodly sinners. I'm so thankful and I'm so glad. And I pray that you would renew our vision. And see you, the invisible God, and know your love. Thank you so much for dying for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.